Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. WalterParks.com, if you'd like to know more about Walter's music. Devine Dial, thank you for managing WPVM-FM. We really do appreciate all the work that you put in there at the station. And if any of you out there listening would like to know more about community radio, WPVMFM.org is a good place to start. And if you'd like to reach out to me, I would love to hear from you. Nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And if you are inclined to write and you like the idea of putting some words on the page, you can join me every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and noon Eastern Time, my creative collaboration. Allegra Houston and I gather on Zoom and we do a little project called the Writing Prompt of the Week session, Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. The door is always open. We have a wonderful group of people who write and laugh and and have fun and sometimes they even say some serious stuff. And, and we just have a lovely time. So it's an hour, hour long. So we'd love it if you would visit and, and be there with us. Imaginativestorm.com. And as you know, if you've been listening to this show for a, for a while, and I hope you have, I, I interview all kinds of people. Some people I know, some people I don't know. Uh, since I've been in the world of, of, of poetry and writing and spoken word for so long, I often am really lucky to get writers to come and be part of this show. And today I have a friend, someone who lives in Taos, recently moved to Taos from Maine, actually, from the, from the East Coast. Her name is Kate Christensen. And Kate is a, a writer, an author. She has eight, nine books to her credit, lots of, of uh, magazine articles. Kate's been at this a long time. And she's a thinker. She reflects on the the combinations of, of our culture and the complexities of it. And in her writing, she can take a complex idea, like a boat sailing from California, say, to Hawaii, and turn it into a rip-roaring sea tale that's full of complexity and yet so impossible to put down. So not everybody can do that, but Kate can. And I'm so happy to welcome Kate to Twice Five Miles Radio. Kate, thanks so much. Nave, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. And I've, I've talked to you, you know, over the years at parties and when I meet you at dinners and things like that, but I don't think we've ever sat down and had a kind of a one-on-one. -on -one. So this is a real pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure for me too. And I always get a chance on these interviews so often to have these personal one-on-one -on -one conversations that I end up allowing other folks to just listen in on. So this is, this is one of those. So Kate, I want to just start by asking you to reflect on your environment right now. And the reason I'd like to do that is because I haven't had a chance to read all your books, but I did read The Last Cruise. And I know that you are inspired by the sea, and I know that you love cooking, and I know that much of what you write about like, for example, another book that we wrote of how to cook a moose is all based on Maine. So now that you've moved to Taos, what's going on in, in your life as a newcomer to the Southwest? 
Well, I love, first of all, that you use the word environment, because I feel like all of my writing comes out of place, a sense of place. And that's as much a character in all my novels and even and my memoirs, too, are about place. I've written two memoirs and they both are sort of based on geographical location. I'm from Arizona, so I'm not really new to the Southwest. Um, I, I grew up in Arizona. Then I was a New Yorker for 20 years after going to Reed College in Oregon. Then I lived in Portland, Maine for 10 years. I've sort of lived um, a variety of places, including France, including Iowa. I, and I think moving to Taos has been pretty profound for me in the sense of the mountains. <laughs> And I want to, I really want to talk about the mountains right now. I want to talk about what happens to the psyche and sort of the emotional state of a person living here, as opposed to say living in Maine, which is a rugged coastline, a lot of rocks, you know, it's about ocean hitting rocks and, and pine trees. It's intense in a whole other way. What I'm finding in Taos and the thing that is making me really happy to be here, because I am happy to be here is getting on a mountain every day for a couple of hours and, and sort of walking on it and just sort of losing myself in thought the way you can when you're climbing. A lot of it is this sense of immense grandeur that sometimes makes me laugh out loud. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's so sublime and it's so open. The land is so immense. It's different from Arizona because Arizona is more full of color and this is more monochromatic. The ecosystem is not as biodiverse here. So it feels like a very sort of integrated place. Every day I'm, I'm hiking with my dogs on the mountain and I'm dictating my novel into my phone. And so the, the combination of writing and climbing, writing and hiking, writing and sort of being on the mountain is something new for me and something really fruitful. Words just come to me while I'm stomping up Divisadero or South Boundary or whatever hike I'm doing that day. I come home with pages written and emailed to myself. Do you think the different environments like the main coast or this show's being aired in Taos and also in Asheville, the, the softer Appalachian mountains or now out here in Taos, the more rugged places, do you sense those places have their own personality that talks to you? How does that work for you and how does it change your vibe when you're walking? Like you say, you dictate when you when you walk. And I, I do sometimes I'll do a solo show and I'll just walk and talk. And I know what you mean. It's easy. You could really do a lot with when you're walking and talking. Does the environment inform you in different ways based on how the environment is set up? Yes, um, that's a really well put. Um, that's kind of where I was going with this whole idea that. When I lived in New York, I'm always walking. I'm, I'm a walker. I grew up walking. Um, I'm a fast walker. I like to walk at the pace that gets my thoughts going. And so walking for me is generally solitary, even when I'm walking with Brendan, my husband, who's also a writer. And I feel like, you know, we both kind of get into this nice rhythm of, of thinking our thoughts. In New York, it was people. It was a human landscape. It was buildings. It was traffic. It was... Um, really feeling like this teeming ecosystem of many, 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 many skulls full of brains fomenting all around me. So I felt part of that. People were what I watched. And here it's not. I mean, I just hiked for two hours today. I didn't see a soul. So it was me alone with my dogs in the mountains 
And that is as different as it could possibly be, I think. And in Maine, the trails are pretty crowded. They're not as rugged. Um, it's very much tied to the ocean where I lived in Portland. Um, even though it's a city, it's not very big and it's right on the ocean. And you're always aware of sort of the smell of the brine, the ions in the air, and that it's a small city. It's gritty. It's changing all the time. It was hard for me to write in Portland because it wasn't extreme enough. It was so comfortable there and so wonderful and pleasant and easy to live there. <laughs> and I think I need some kind of adversity to, to come up against. Like, let's say the trail of, up and down to Visadero, it's all mud and ice and snow, and you never know what the conditions are going to be. And you wear your spikes and then you take them off when it gets muddy. So writing into my phone on a mountain in and around Taos feels like I'm sort of wrestling with the mountain. Like in New York, I was wrestling with the whole feeling of being a New Yorker. It's a hard place to live. It's like the way an oyster makes a pearl when a grain of sand gets into its shell. You know, I need something to come up against. I love the feeling of getting to a rocky point in the trail and being out of breath, having to figure out which way to go so I don't slip in the mud. Meanwhile, all these words are crowded in my head. If that makes sense, I'm finding my writing coming back now. I think I had 10 years of sort of struggling with it. Was that because when you were living in New York, you found the cacophony too much with the, all the psychic energy around you? I lived in New York. I've been in New York off and on for decades. I walked a lot, as you did, you know, go down First Avenue, cut through Stuyvesant, zip across 13th down to B Cup, a little coffee shop I loved and would go there all the time. And I found it very stimulating, but I never walked and recorded when I was there because I was too stimulated. Is that the case with you or was it That's the opposite? No, actually, I carried a notebook in New York um, and I would often stop and write things down. I lived in New York from 1989 to 2009. So the internet was born while I was living in New York. I always had a notebook and a pen in my bag. And that was back when we all wrote by hand. The cacophony of New York was the equivalent to me to the rocky, icy, muddy incline of a mountain here. It was so textured and so immense, so much bigger than me. Portland, Maine is so perfectly scaled. It, I have to say, I've never lived anywhere where I felt easier in my skin. I know that Maine is full of writers, farmers and writers. That's what Maine has. And so I know there are people who get amazing work done there. And a lot of them are my friends, but I just wasn't one of them. And I think I'm finally figuring out why I'm a writer who needs adversity of some kind. And I'm thinking also about storytelling from the traditional point of view many people have seen in Jonesboro, Tennessee at the National Storytelling Festival, the storyteller walks on stage and does the story. Telling your story into your phone, dictating it, when did that change start to happen for you? And why has this now become the preferred method or has it? It has. And that's a really good question. I hadn't articulated this change to myself. I mean, I've been noticing that I'm now speaking my book aloud. That is a big change. And writing by hand is a particular kind of writing too. And that mostly was notes. And then I would get back to my computer, open the file, look at my notes. It was a solid relationship with handwriting with a pen. 
that I had. I think that this dictating into my phone has started since I got to Taos. And I think there's maybe something about a mountain that makes you want to tell a story out loud. <laughs> Wonder what that could be. <laughs> Gee whiz. <laughs> Gather around, friends. The fire has just started. <laughs> Get your banjos out. <laughs> oh, my, my goodness. That's, uh, that's really quite funny. When you do this work by way of the dictation, and it comes out, and you've been at it a long time now, and it's a bit like a musician playing music, I would think. I just did an interview with a couple of people. I don't really know them. I just met them on Zoom, and uh, Don and Julia, and they're musicians, and they Ju Don has been playing for 20 years with Rod Stewart as the, one of the lead guitar players, and Julia has been playing for 12 years as a percussionist with Rod Stewart. And so they were talking about how much they all, the band, they how much they love the vibe. And they weren't talking about mus being musicians. They were talking about reading the energy of the room. And it's almost like they had all these invisible strings they were playing while they were playing their actual big stadium concerts. So when you are dictating, are you noticing the quality of the work changing? How does the how does the dictation inform the story? Two things going on here. It's your story, you're thinking of it, but then you're saying it, and then it's coming back to you, like a reflexive verb in French almost. That's right. Yeah, I write myself or something. The story writes itself. <laughs> um, well, I, I think the work that I'm doing while I'm dictating is actually the psychological gloss around conversations and action, which I tend to write just directly. Um, and I find myself thinking hard about my characters while I'm walking and thinking about the deeper implications of the action and what they're all saying to one another. It's a book about loss and grief and trauma. And I'm making it sound really grim, but I hope it's funny. <laughs> I hope it has humor. <laughs> humor saves us from everything. And it's, a, it's about a woman who goes home after her mother dies, and slowly everything she cares about is stripped from her. It's an existential novel, and she's a climate journalist. There's that element, too, about how do you go on in the face of everything? I'm thinking a lot about Samuel Beckett, who asked the question, you know, and it's not a question, it's, it's, a, it's a statement that I quote to myself a lot. I can't go on, I'll go on. Every book I write, I have a touchstone quote or work or writer or idea that I come back to again and again and again. And it sometimes does make it into the book, but it often doesn't. This I can't go on, I'll go on is I think at the heart of how lives sometimes bottom out I think everyone maybe has experienced this after a certain age. When you look at your circumstances and you look at yourself and you feel this sort of dark time. I mean, I've hit this point a few times in my life. And I'm thinking of one particular like very dark time when I felt everything I cared about had been stripped from me. And I remember just realizing that I had to go on living and that the business of living brushing your teeth, having your coffee in the morning, all this sort of gritty self-caretaking of life, <laughs> you know, that can save you in those times that you have to eat. At some point you need a shower 
And if you have a dog, the dog needs a walk and so forth and so on. You can be broke and down and out and lovelorn and at odds with your community, but you still have to do those things. And in some way, there's this integrity of daily life that you return to. I like the sense of the integrity of the daily life that you return to. We all return to it. It's just part of what makes us who we are. So on your your daily walks, which would be part of your daily life, you're telling the story into your iPhone and the iPhone records it and then you come back and put it onto your computer. How much do you revise once you get the story onto your computer? Is it fixed or do you have a lot of work in front of you? I find that I don't need to revise it very much when I'm dictating. And like you said, I've been at this a very long time. I feel like an old war horse and I have scars and I and I, I pretty much know the battle. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the battlefield is changing. The world of publishing and the world of writing is changing radically um, in the 21st century. And so it's not the world I came up in. I started writing when I was six. And as soon as I realized there were stories, I wanted to write them and tell them. And it's like somebody who loves to eat, realizing they want to cook. You want to give back this pleasure that you're receiving from other writers and be part of this non-temporal community that just exists through history. The people who write and the people who read and the people, there's a communion that I wanted to partake of. I wanted to take what I saw in the world around me and the struggles I had inside me that I felt other people had too, and make them into stories and make them into fiction and make them into characters who had problems that I hoped would make readers feel like they weren't alone in having them too. The whole thing of dictating for me, there's so little pressure when I'm on the mountain with my phone. There's no pressure. I get a sense of what the book needs. This book is needing something. And here I go and I open an email file and I hit the little microphone and I just start saying what it is out loud. Like the other day, it was my character's relationship with her dead mother, which has changed, although her mother is dead, through the novel as she wrestles with this very, very, very complicated mother. It's toward the end of the novel. And I just realized, oh, she knows all these new things now. And I'm just going to say what they are, just as if I were talking to a friend. Um, so I did. And I got home and I had a thousand words. You know, you have to put it in a different font and you have to make it the right size and double spaced. And that is a whole process, too, is taking this raw text and then gussying it up to put it in the novel, making it the right format and stuff. And while you do that, I can see it all taking shape like some kind of sea creature um, that I've a little dry sponge that I put in water and I can see it growing and taking its form. Um, and I kind of give it a little nudge here and there, like, oh, this sentence is too long and I could move this over here and like that. There's a place in the novel where I've had in mind all along where it needs to go. How many novels have I written now? Gosh, a lot. And so I feel like the whole idea of a novel for me has always been and it never changes and it never gets really easier to write a novel. I mean, this is my seventh draft and I've been struggling with this book for three years the one thing that I've gotten better at and the one thing that I, I think I've learned over these many decades <laughs> is that a novel is a live thing. You don't have to be afraid of it. You don't have to be afraid of all the, all the things that aren't there yet because you have time. 
you have time and you have the ability to go away from it and come back. I used to feel the anxiety that I had to make it perfect the first time around. The older I get, the more aware I am of the impossibility of that, first of all, and also how limiting that is and how it blocks you. I have many opportunities to talk to a lot of people who come to me because I do work with people who have taken some time off from their desires, if you will, for their careers, their families, whatever they they do, and they want to write a book. They often will come with the idea that, that writing their book is like mowing their lawn. You start the mower, you go out and you mow the lawn and you come back in and you put it up. You're <laughs> done. Hey, how, how about that? I like my new lawn? Right, and, right. And I try to say, when you write, you're having a relationship with yourself and all of the stories inside of you. It's not as much writing as it is a mystery tour, if you will. You're wandering around in this mysterious rainforest that is you, and you look at all these little animals and creatures, and somehow you manage to collect them all. And people sometimes get excited when I say that, and other times they get discouraged because they think, oh, you mean you don't just sit down and write a book and it's done, and then somebody says, yay for you? And I'm going, well, I don't know too many people that have done that, but maybe somebody, <laughs> Stephen King might be one. They claim he can sit down and write from start to finish. I don't know if that's true or not, but not many people can. I believe but, he can. I, I I believe it. But yeah, he's the only one. <laughs> nobody else. <laughs> and so you were talking about when you're when you're when you're walking, you are getting to know your characters. So when you are evaluating your characters or getting to know these characters that are emerging out of Kate, how much more insight do you get into yourself? How do these characters teach you to move through life, walking the dog, et cetera? That's a really interesting question. I, I find myself nodding really hard while you're asking it. And now I'm thinking, wow. So how to begin to answer that? I, I think my 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 novels are all sort of questions I'm asking. This directly relates to your question. They are all things that I'm trying to figure out. And I find it easier to figure it out in fiction with proxies who are the characters that I've invented who are not me, but are extensions of me, and maybe are parts of myself that I haven't ever explored or given voice to or allowed myself to inhabit. And so it's like a parallel life. I always think of a novel also as as a bubble attached to my head um, that is full of itself. And it's, it's attached by an umbilicus to my brain. And I climb up through the umbilicus every day, and I inhabit this bubble with my characters, That and it's fed by me, of course, by what exists in my brain. There's nothing else. My perceptions, my experience, my questions, my observations of other people, um, all the stuff that I'm wrestling with in my own life, you know, all that stuff comes up the umbilicus and fills this filmy bubble. And then at the end of the day, I climb down and I eat my dinner and whatever, go to sleep. And then back up, I go the next day. It's like existing in both places, in me and in this extension of me. And then I think when the book is done, I sort of cut the umbilical cord and it floats off into the world and it's not mine anymore and I'm not connected to it anymore. If that sounds like a metaphor for having children, it very much is. Um, even though it's it's not. My books are out in the world and I think of each of them as a little capsule of 
who I was at the time that I wrote it. And I can go back, say, and open The Great Man and, and start to read it and think, wow, I don't remember writing this. I don't. And part of it is that I wrote it many years ago, like 15 years ago. But another part of it is that this whole question I was struggling with, like the great man is really about my father. I knew it at the time. I didn't know why. Now I do because time has gone on. That was that. That was that whole era. That was a two or three year period of my life. And there's a continuity between books too. Like I can see why I wrote trouble after the great man. I know what happened in my life and I know why I needed to write that book. And I know what I was dealing with then. There's always a sense of rediscovering a lost self when you open a a work that you finished a long time ago, like a shed skin. And I noticed when I was reading The Last Cruise, thank you, Allegra, she had it on her shelf. And I said, do you have any of Kate's books? And Allegra says, yeah, I have The Last Cruise. I said, let me have it. I'll I'll read read it. And I, you know, sat down and thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll read this and maybe I'll be through with it by the time I talk to Kate on Friday. Well, I was, I zipped right through the thing. Let me tell you, I was through, through with it. It was, it was, <laughs> and it had all the environmental stuff in it. And it also had a lot of food in it. And I know that you love food and that's part of who you are as well as a writer. And I imagine making that dish and creating a story is very similar. You put all the parts together and then you say, here, take this. Here's, here's my gift. That's and you also, you also spoke of France. And are you connected to the French cooking scene? And is that something that you have an interest in? And how did that unfold for you? I can't believe you asked that. I've just started writing a monthly column called Bouffe. Um, for a French website called Frenchly. And I just um, published my first one today. And it's about soca, which is a Mediterranean chickpea crepe or pancake. It's something that I like to make. It's something I like to eat. And um, the editor of Frenchly just wrote and said, she's a friend of mine and said, I wonder if you would write about soca for my website. And I did. And I love writing about food. I've written two food memoirs. I've written about food in all kinds of different ways. And there's food in all my novels, as you saw in the last cruise. There's a chef. <laughs> and I love the uh, Mick. I think is the guy's name, right? Is that, <laughs> That's right. Mick was um, he could he could cook. <laughs> the Hungarian chef. Of course, you have to have a chef if you're writing about a cruise ship because cruises are, are famous for their food. So that was part of why I wanted to write about a cruise. Also, because it's such a floating metaphor, I couldn't resist for 20th century or 21st century capitalist America. The whole joy for me in food writing and reading about food is that I think there's this intersection between food and language in our brains. When I was little, I would read children's books and there's so much food in them. Not just Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is the obvious one, but like the Turkish delight in the Narnia books in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And then there's Little House on the Prairie and all these enormous breakfasts that they would have. And even Little Women, Joe would go up in the attic and and eat apples while she wrote. And so when I was little, I had this incredible itch every time I read about food in a book to eat that food. I felt like if I didn't, I was going to (laughs) explode. So so I had to go in search of it and I had to find some approximation of it and then eat it along with the characters in the book. And so that was how my interest in food writing was born because I think some people have a palate in their brains. And I think that the language of food, when you read it, feeds that 
in a way excites it. And it's a pure experience. You, you don't necessarily have to eat while you read. I discovered the writer MFK Fisher. She is a great American food writer. She certainly is an exemplar and one of the greatest practitioners of the food memoir. I would read her writing for comfort when I was in my 20s living in the East Village and in a little rat hole on an air shaft and broke and depressed and drinking too much and in a terrible relationship. And I just thought, you know, I was about to turn 30 and I was like, I'm never going to be published. My life is terrible. You know, it was, it was that awful, like late twenties despair. I, I kept MFK Fisher's books on my nightstand and at three in the morning, when I woke up and couldn't sleep, I would read them. I would read her. I found the whole the whole concept of writing about food so immensely human and comforting and cheerful and soothing and to read about someone else's life too and because her life wasn't always easy either and it was this feeling of connection through food then of course I wanted to write about because when you love something you want to give it back and do it and so I started putting a lot of food in my novels um, and The Last Cruise is just one novel of mine that is crammed full of food. When I think of food, I think of growing up in Western North Carolina around Asheville, and we had a garden and we canned the vegetables and it was country cooking at maybe not its best, but you know, the idea of a, of a salad was to put bacon grease over, <laughs> over lettuce and and, and 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 oh my gosh, it was a the droopy lettuce, but the bacon grease was was great. And then I think about the the French lifestyle, and I I don't know that much about French food. I do have a friend who lives in Paris. Her name is Susan Loomis, and Susan has published a maybe nine or ten cookbooks on French cooking. One memoir called En Route à Ten. She lived in lived in Louvier, France. She now lives in Paris, but she does cooking schools. And so she introduced me to her world of cooking. And there's a grace to it. There's maybe not an ease, but certainly a, 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 an attitude about how one has a relationship. One dances with the asparagus, so to speak. Exactly. <laughs> Versus like in North Carolina, well, we poured some <laughs> bacon grease on the on this lettuce. Here you go. So in writing and, and when you develop your characters, how does food identify the character? There are two things you just said that I want to talk about. One is French food as opposed to the food of the 70s in Arizona when I was growing up, which was like hot dogs and you open a can of creamed corn, spam, TV dinners. And oh, it was glorious. I loved it. It was a great time to be a kid. You know, I was an au pair in France when I was 18 and I worked for a family with four little boys and I had to cook for them. And here I was fresh out of high school and I wasn't a cook. And so I learned to cook from the mother who was an English woman named Vivian, who I adored. She was very English and also knew how to cook. What I learned to make was this interesting melange of French and English and, and sort of Fringlish <laughs> um, food. Like I, I learned how to make a really good uh, mincemeat pie. And the trick is, you take the mincemeat and the beef fat and the alcohol and the dried fruit and you put it in a jar and you let it sit for a couple of months. That is in French. 
but I did learn that in France. And so for me, the whole idea of French cooking is very fast and loose. And I think it's the only reason I can write a column about French cooking, living in New Mexico, not being French. I know Susan Loomis, and I also know David Lebowitz and all these great expat writers who are living in France, who are writing about French food far more authoritatively than I ever can or will. But I also feel like I have a relationship with French food that's Well, let's just say it's organic. (laughs) Like I'll see something I want to make and I'll find a recipe and I'll make it. And it's that simple. And, you know, with a good recipe, I love Julia Child. Um, I find her recipes incredibly complex and complicated, but yet excellent. You know, with a good recipe, you can make anything. And so what I want to do is unintimidate. Just take this whole incredibly complex, sophisticated cuisine and just write about it in a way that's fun. If I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> so your your column in in France is it? Do you write it in French or do no, you have no, it? No, no, I write it in English, and that's another ratcheting down of the intimidation factor for me too. Is that I write it in English for Americans? That's who my readers are. So, what I want to do is take something that's quintessentially French and that looks intimidating and hard to make or something you've never heard of, like a lot of people haven't heard of soca, which is easy and delicious and cheap and good for you. Just tell a story about it and then give a recipe. Um, I did a food blog for a couple of years. I always enjoyed that whole approach to it. I think about food in Paris and I have a my dear friend, John Van Hasselt, who lives on Rue Dauphine, which is in the sixth near the Odeon Metro stop. And John's a Dutch guy. And we met in 1968 when he was in college here in the States. And he's been living in the same flat that hasn't been renovated since World War II, probably. And it's one of the last little bits of what once was in a really fashionable district now. But when I go to get to go to see John, he says, well, well, you know, it's where we'll have it's time for our meal tonight. We're going to have a meal. And I said, well, okay, great. So he, <laughs> he, he boils some spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> he stirs up some beef and some sauce. And says, Here you go, man. It's some cheese. It's really good French food. <laughs> if you make it in France, it's French. That's what he says. You know, here, you know, enjoy it. You know, I've got plenty where there's plenty where that came from. I you love know? that attitude. It sounds delicious. I need it. <laughs> yeah. And I remember once Susan Loomis and I were, we, we bought sardines and then we went to John's house for for the meal and so john just steamed the sardines and threw them on a plate and said here eat them and there was nothing fancy about it of course fortunately susan was not fussy either she didn't mind it but it it was just it was really really goofy but i love the idea of of food being so much a part of of the storytelling process and also I'd like for you to reflect on the environmental aspects of your work. Now, food comes from the environment. We eat because the earth gives us these bounty. And we are as much a part of the earth as all the other animals. So the environment, food, personality, why the environment? Why is that so important to you in your work? I know in the last cruise, even though it was about a boat, And it was about a boat going across the ocean, which was a character. The plastic in the ocean was a character. The knives also on the chef's table, those were characters. They could all speak. And yet the environment, the big ocean, that was the god. That was Poseidon. 
That's exactly right. You know, and it's the Pacific. And I was living on the Atlantic when I wrote that novel. The intersection of character, food, and environment. Those three things that you just named, I think I can trace through everything I've written. You asked the other question, and I really like this question, is how does food reveal character? How, how does writing about food tell you who someone is? And I always think, yes, it's, it's, like a, it's like a really nice shortcut. It's a fun, engaging, for me as the writer, way to show people. I have a character in The Epicure of Lament um, who's a 40-year-old hermit smoking himself to death in his ancestral mansion on the Hudson River right after 9-11. And he cooks himself solitary sort of hermit suppers. And the things he makes himself and the way he talks about food, the way he is about food, he is a suicidal man. He is determined to commit suicide. He reads Montaigne and he, he has a whole philosophy around suicide. But his relationship with food is directly at odds with his purported philosophy. And so I use food to sort of show who he really is. Despite what he's telling you, despite what he's, what he's um, espousing, you watch him cook for himself and other people, and you know something about him that you wouldn't otherwise know. That leads you to the ending of the book, um, which comes directly out of his mischief-making determination to feed himself in a certain way and to feed other people, which is a love of life, ultimately. When one consumes food or the relationship one has with food, if you were an investigator, and you wanted to learn about a person, and you were a keen investigator, you could find out a lot about a person by how fast they eat, or you can find out a lot about a person about how slow they eat, or how much they buy at the store, how often they go to the store. I know my grandmother made these fabulous German chocolate cakes, mm. and she was a woman of the of the 30s, of the Depression. It was all I could do to get a, a slice from her. And her slices were very thin because she was afraid of not having enough. Whereas someone who grows up in a complete, utter abundance might have no concern for saving food at all. That's exactly, exactly right. Really interesting. I know that I tend to eat faster than I should, because I'm afraid I'm not going to get enough. Now, where does that come from? I do too. Same thing. Really? Yeah. I eat so fast and I feel like there's this anxiety in it. I try to slow down. I know exactly what you mean. And did you grow up not having enough? No, we had plenty of food. Same, same. I here. had lots of I had lots of uh, bacon grease on <laughs> lettuce in the summertime, and we 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 can. I didn't grow up with abundance or wealth. I grew up in a working class family. Father was working for the power company. My mother worked as a nurse. We had more than enough money. I had an allowance back in the fifties, a quarter a week. 25 cents. So I didn't feel like I had all that much, even though I did. So I think that may be where it comes from. I think it may not come from your childhood circumstances, even. It may come from something else, something elemental. This is the thing about fictional characters. Sometimes I don't know how a character is going to eat. I don't know what kind of food they like until I start writing about 
them having a meal and everything that I already know about them informs what they do and how they eat and what they order and what's in their grocery cart, you know? And have you ever been surprised by one of your characters to discover something they didn't like that you never imagined they wouldn't like? Yes, absolutely. I have. Like what? The thing that surprised me was what this character made. And her name is Maxine and she's a painter and she's in her 80s and it's in the book, The Great Man. And it turns out she makes the best tuna salad in the world. And, you know, I'm writing out what she puts in the tuna salad. It's not how I make tuna salad at all. She puts capers in her tuna salad, which I don't do. But I've started doing it since she taught me to. And I know that sounds a little woo-woo, but that's how she made it. It came out in a way of she has to entertain someone, and this is what she's going to make. And it's her old girlfriend who broke her heart um, many years ago. So she makes her this the best thing she knows how to make in the world. And it's this tuna salad. There are all these recipes in The Great Man. Everyone's always cooking because the whole book is built around a series of meals. And so after I wrote the book, I just invented every single recipe I invented in my brain while I was writing for the character. And I made them all. I made each and every one of them over time after I finished the book to make sure, you know, do these work. They work on the page. Are they actually good? (laughs) And they were. So I would say just about every recipe in that book surprised me. I feel like that book, I really let my food flag fly in every chapter. I've let my characters play with food and invent stuff and, and, you know, make stuff that I wouldn't make. And it was a pleasure to find out that these recipes actually were good. I still make some of them. And another thing I love about this conversation around food and writing and creativity, I love it because this sort of approach is available to everyone. If you are alive, you have been eating since you were born. Yes. So there's a thread here, a narrative thread that will continue on until you are no longer on this earth. You might be getting some sort of spiritual nutrition after you leave, but uh, but when you finally go away, you stop eating. So we all have this relationship with food. So if anyone out there listening to this show is wondering, well, how do I approach my own storytelling life? Wouldn't it be a good place to start at the breakfast table? Yeah. So to speak. I have an exercise that I give students sometimes, which is to write a story in the form of a recipe. That's it. That's the exercise. Write a story in the form of a recipe. So you're you're ostensibly telling someone how to make a dish. But what you're really doing is telling all about yourself. And I won't say any more about it, but um, I recommend trying it. I'm already doing it. send it to me i want to read it well i just thought of the first slide take one breath one splash of light (laughs) and a distant sound add one minute and you begin there i did a storytelling workshop once and i asked people to tell me the story of what happened to you from the time you woke up this morning until the time you arrived at the library and keep it really simple like did you stop at a red light And of course, none of them could keep it simple. We went over to Israel and we went to some other place and (laughs) drifted off into the mountains to see some elk or something, you know, and and they finally made it to the library. But it was really interesting to start with that simple, simple request. 
you brushed your teeth when you got up. What else happened? That's that. So, Kate, we're getting close to the end of our time together. Uh, can you tell me some of the things that you have in front of you? You are moving into your time in Taos. You're getting to know the mountain. The mountain is writing the book. All you're doing is you have a little dictation job. You walk along and the mountain tells the story and you write it down and then you put it out. And also the publishing world is changing a fair amount these days. And you're still at it. You're still a professional writer. And yet you're trying to fit into the world of publishing like all the rest of the creative people out there. So how's all that going to shape out for you in the next year or so or two years? I wish I knew. I have a book out right now with editors. It's a detective novel set in Southern Arizona, and I have no idea if it'll sell. I'm working on this very serious existential novel that I hope has some humor in it. And again, I have no idea if it'll sell, but I, I feel like I, I can only write the books I write. And that will always be true. And the marketplace changes and is what it is. And sometimes it's kind and sometimes it's cruel. And I feel like we're all in this together. All, all of us writers um, are telling our stories and there's room for all of them somewhere in the world. Um, and I'm hoping there's room for mine, but I'll keep telling them. As we all know, the, writer, the marketplace for writers is one thing. Walking up the mountain and listening for the stories that are asking to be told is a very different proposition. The two things are completely mutually exclusive. And that's a good thing. And finally, before we go, how can people get in touch with you if they'd like to know more about your work? I have a website, it's katechristensen.net. And I am on Instagram, katechristensen100. And I don't really tweet. I'm not really on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. You can find me through my website and um, there's a portal to leave messages and I answer them. I welcome any kind of communication or interaction. Well, Kay, thanks so much for this interaction. Thanks for taking the time out to spend a few moments with us. That was fun. Thank you so much. And there you go, my friends. That brings our conversation with Kate Christensen to a close. I hope you got a sense of how you can engage your writing practice. After listening to Kate, I learned a number of things. She gave me confidence in the idea of speaking words into your recorder, your smartphone. Now, there are two ways to go when you dictate on your smartphone. One, you can just simply press record, dictate, and record your voice, and you have a sound file of whatever you are talking about. Two, you can dictate into your notes if you have an iPhone. If you have other smartphones, you have other ways of dictating, probably in the notes as well. I've only used an iPhone, so that's all I know. So when I dictate into my iPhone notes, and I've done it before, but not at the level Kate's talking about. So when I'm dictating into my iPhone notes, I press microphone and start talking, and it starts recording. Now, it will stop after a bit, and you have to redo the microphone punch again. But that's okay for me. I don't mind that at all. So I think that's what Kate is up to when she's recording her work. 
The other way to do it is to just record it like a sound file. Now, the reason why that's in some ways easier to do, because you can just do stream of consciousness and you can record it and you don't have to worry about stopping and pressing the microphone and fooling with any of the little nuances that go along with the dictation process and having the dictation process appear in text. So after you get your sound file recorded, you can get it onto the page two ways. One, you can sit down and type it out as you listen to it. Two, you can send it off to a transcription service and have the transcription service return the text within an hour or so. So you get what you said on the page and then you can go back and edit what you've said. I've used a transcription service now and then and the one that I have used is Sonix, S-O-N-I-X. I came across it online. It's $10 an hour and you pay as you go. So $10 an hour means you record an hour's worth of text and you upload the sound file to Sonex and they send you back the transcript. And I don't know how many words an hour equals. It's a fair amount. You can talk a whole lot in an hour if you keep moving. So it's actually not that expensive to, to do and it's really worthwhile. And, and when I've used Sonex, which I can only recommend because it's the only one I've used and I've been very happy with it. I'm sure others are just as sufficient as Sonex. But when I've used it, I upload my file and the text comes back within an hour or two. It gets most of the words. And that's all you need when you are just beginning to work with your rough draft because a lot of what you'll say simply won't be usable. You'll toss it. But I, I'll guarantee you, you, you'll keep 10%, maybe even more, and the content that you toss or you don't use isn't lost. That content forms the foundation for more material that will come later. And who knows, even the material or content that you think you're not going to use, you may read over in a day or two, and you might find some tidbits in there that you can repurpose or little tidbits that will inspire an idea and take you forward with that idea in your text. Another thing to keep in mind, if you go in the direction of dictating your content as you walk along on the path you choose, like Kate walks on the paths around the, the rugged Taos area. So no matter where you're walking along the shore or around Beaver Lake in Asheville, or the trails in Taos, or other trails everywhere, there are trails everywhere. No matter where you walk, when you dictate your content, you'll be surprised at what comes out. When you're walking, you're cueing your whole body, so your body becomes your, your instrument, your composition instrument, if you will. I love to sit and write, and I also love to, to walk and dictate. It's two different experiences, and when you put them both together, you do the dictation and then you come back and you transcribe it and you sit down and you work with it, you never know what kind of good stuff's going to pop out because of that combination. So when you're walking along and you're dictating your work and it's being transcribed into your notes on your smartphone, you will never hear your voice. That said, if you decide you would like to record your work, and then have it transcribed and you record your work and then you send it off to the transcription service and it comes back as text. You're back at the same spot of never hearing your voice.
if you do decide to listen to your voice, if you've never recorded your voice and listened to it for the first time, you may be surprised at how you sound. You might like the way you sound. A lot of people, when they first hear their voice, when they first recorded it, they're not sure if they like their voice or not. Well, I wanted just to make sure to encourage you to listen to it again and again, because what's actually happening, since you never really hear your voice, you're getting to know a new voice, and you probably have a notion of how your voice sounds to you, and it does sound a certain way when it comes out, and you hear it with your own ears. It's a very different proposition when you record it and you play it back. Now, here's the good news. Your voice will sound maybe odd. You might not like it at first, or you might like it. Either way, after you record it and listen back to your voice a few times, you will grow accustomed to it, and it will start to sound more familiar, like you're getting to know someone for the first time and recognizing that voice. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up as we close the show I want you to relax into the idea that your voice sounds just fine as it is. Oh, you might be able to deepen it. You might be able to make it a little more breathy. You could make it high. You can make it low. But basically, it's the voice you were born with. It's the voice you've developed. And it's the voice that people recognize and associate with you. When you do your recordings, and if you do decide to play around with how your voice sounds, I think it's a good idea because you can actually skip sending your sound file off to the transcription service and you can sit down and just take the dictation as you listen to your own voice speak. It'll take a little bit longer, but it's a great way to revise, to edit, to get to know your your natural rhythms, your natural composition rhythms. And it's also interesting because if you wanted to go in the direction of doing a podcast, broadcasting what you've spoken as you're walking along, that's also an option too. I use an app from Hindenburg Journalist to record my sound files on my smartphone. You also have basic recording devices on your smartphone, and when you finish recording them, you can airdrop them to your computer. And before you airdrop them, if you'd like to edit them, you can edit them on Hindenburg Journalist app. You can also download Audacity, which is an open source editing program. A lot of people like to use it. A little bit of research will uncover all you need to know about these things that I've just been touching on. So thanks to Kate, she's pointed out many, many different ways we can compose our work. Writing doesn't mean you have to sit down at the desk and type it out or write it out, although both are perfectly fine. Recording your work is fine as well. And you can also videotape yourself talking to the camera if you feel comfortable with that. So no matter how you get your content down on the page or on the film or on the sound file, remember that a lot of it you won't use. Also remember, a lot of it you will use, and that is the whole point of this so, again, thank you, Kate Christensen, for reminding us about the many ways we can go about generating our content, making our work, writing our stories, getting our stories out, creating new delivery systems that will allow people to hear, hear what we have to say. And what you have to say, wherever you are in the world, is important. So good luck on saying it or writing it or getting it out in whatever way you want. 
On that note, I would like to say that you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP, Asheville, 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Kate Christensen, for all the, the good wisdom you gave us about writing. Thank you, Walter Parks, for... Our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in any of Walter's music. Hats off to Devine Dial for managing WPVM-FM. If you'd like to know more about community radio, WPVM-FM.org is a great place to look. If you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. I would love to hear from you. If you do happen to record something, you can send me a sound file. I'd like to hear what you have to say or send me something that you write. I would love to hear it. Nave at jamesnave.com for all that. And, of course, my website is jamesnave.com. Nave spelled N-A-V-E. And if you'd like to join me on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, I, I gather with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, and we do what we call the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session people gather, writers, and we work for an hour and then read our work and we have a good fun. ImaginativeStorm.com if you'd like to know more about that. The Zoom link is at the top of the fold when you arrive at ImaginativeStorm.com. And we have now arrived at the end of our time together. Thanks ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. And I do hope you tune in again the next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.